Thanks for listening to the Woodward Podcast Network. Check out more shows by searching for us on Spreaker or wherever you catch your podcasts. The Woodward Podcast Network with Krupka Dental Associates. Hello, this is Dr. John Krupka from Krupka Dental. We now have the Soleil Laser. You can have your fillings done without needles nor drills. We are a full-service dental office and always accepting new patients. To learn more about me and my friendly team, visit KrupkaDental.com. Whether you're in your garden or hiking through the woods, we have you covered. Call now with your outdoor questions. In Appleton, call 281-1150 or outside the valley, 866-887-1150. From the Myron Construction Studios of WHBY, it's Outdoors with Rob Zimmer. Brought to you by Brookdale Appleton Senior Living. Good afternoon and welcome to Focus Fox Valley and Outdoors with Rob Zimmer here on WHBY. I'm Haley Tenpass. It is Friday, May 22nd. And of course, we are joined on our phone lines today by Rob Zimmer Outdoors. Hi, Rob. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes. How are you doing today? Good, good. I'm just having problems with my phone, so I wanted to make sure you could hear me okay. (laughs) All right, so if Rob drops out <laughs> during yeah. the show, it's because his phone is having issues. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very low charge, and for some reason my car, my charger cable isn't working unless I hold it at just this right angle. So. <laughs> oh, no. So yeah, so I hope I have look- enough power to get me through the show. <laughs> me too, because I am not much of the expert here. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about today, and we would love if you join the conversation, too. The number is 281-1150 on that Settlers Bank phone lines. And I know, Rob, you uh, had some exciting things to talk about today. Yes, the Monarchs are back. So I want to talk a lot today about Monarchs. Several people saw them uh, last week. So um, A couple of people saw them this week. So I want to get people ready for the Monarchs because they're back, and especially this week coming up with temperatures in the upper 70s and 80s. Um, they're actually a little bit late this year. Some people are surprised uh, when I tell them the Monarchs are back already, but they're actually a little bit late. Usually I see them about the second week in May, um, and we actually did see them in the second week of May, but then if you remember, we had those freezing cold nights for a couple uh, nights there, so I hope they, they made it through that. But they are back now, and there's more coming this coming week, so... Um, and since the, the, a lot of the native wildflowers are actually about two to three weeks behind right now, and that includes the milkweed. So I want to tell people if they're going out shopping this weekend for plants or going to garden centers to pick up a few extra plants for the monarchs, or they can get a butterfly feeder, a monarch butterfly feeder, which they have at some of the, like the wild bird stores I know have those. Um, uh, or they can learn how to make a monarch feeder by just Googling it, and, and they can find out how to make a really easy monarch feeder, you know, with, with a sponge and some nectar and stuff like that. So all sorts of things we can do to help them until the wildflowers really start to bloom. Speaking of uh, things in bloom, there's a lilac bush that's right next to uh, the window that I look out, and there are some very faint purple blossoms coming through so that lilac bush i'm guessing is going to just uh spring to life in the next week or so yeah i was that's funny that you mentioned that because i was just noticing this morning when i was driving around that i saw my first lilac bush in bloom um in appleton and then as i was driving around this afternoon i saw more and more and more so yeah the lilacs are bursting in the bloom and they are about two weeks late too you know a lot of years they're they're blooming on mother's day um because i remember giving my mom lilac uh, bouquets a lot of times on mother's day so 
they're a little bit late, but they're they're just about to burst. And again, um, we had all that rain the other day. That probably helped all of that rain. You can probably hear a red-winged blackbird singing literally right next to me. So if he if you hear him, he's like right next to my shoulder here. <laughs> so I'm sitting <laughs> he's in the parking our first lot guest. At the center. <laughs> I'm sitting <laughs> in a parking lot at, at one of the nature centers, and he's just right next to me. So um, yeah, the lilacs are starting to bloom. The magnolias are kind of finishing up. The forsythias are finishing up. Um, I was just I was just noticing as I was walking through the woods just before. It kind of makes me sad because. Already, so many of the flowers are done, like the, um, the trout lilies and bloodroot and some of the others are, are already gone, and the trilliums are already starting to turn pink and fade away, so uh, spring is going way too fast. But like you say, Rob, there's beauty in every season, and uh, once one thing ends, another begins, so there's so much to look forward to. And like you said today, monarchs returning, that is, uh, I cannot wait to see my first monarch. I haven't spotted one yet. Yeah. There are some spotted in, in Outagamie County, in Wapaka County, Winnebago County, so they're kind of all around us. Uh, so they are back. In fact, my friend Cindy Miller saw one. Uh, she's, out, she's on the show a lot with me. She calls in a lot. She saw a monarch, and so did my friend Carol out in uh, the Greenville-Hortonville area. So they're here. So we just got to get ready and plant some things for them or make a monarch feeder to help them until some more of these wildflowers start to bloom. And I'll talk more about that Um the show, I want to talk about the best annuals that we can plant for monarchs, the best perennials we can plant for monarchs, um, early season nectar, se- nectar sources, late season nectar sources. I want to talk about the life cycle of monarchs because that's really interesting um, and some other stuff. I, want, I also want to talk about, I want to make some time for uh, this in the show too, hopefully we'll get to it, is what to do if you, because now it's spring, this is kind of baby wildlife season and I want to talk about, again, what to do if you find an injured bird or fawn or baby rabbit or something like that, what to do in those cases. Rob, I think that's a really important thing to speak to because, um, I, you know, just looking into my own friend list on social media, sometimes people will post, hey, I found this abandoned nest and uh, I found these little baby animals or this fawn seems to be all alone or this, these little baby bunnies, the mom left them. Um, and sometimes that's really not the case. Exactly. It's usually the opposite. Like like for rabbits specifically and fawns, really, um, they're on their own during the day. Those young rabbits and those young fawns, they're basically left alone during the day to just, to just hide out, to just uh, remain still, remain motionless. So if you happen to find one uh, in the woods or in the trail, on the trail, or in your backyard even, or in your plants and stuff, you know, mama's not going to be there. She only comes back for maybe a little while to feed them. And it's usually just that sunrise and sunset. And the same thing with the deer, um, the mama, the doe, you know, she leaves the fawn there all day long. So that fawn isn't alone. She's usually within sight. I mean, she knows you're there if you go up to it. Um, uh, but then the, the opposite side of that is, you know, so many people, there's this myth going around that, you know, you're not supposed to touch it. You're not supposed to touch the animals because you're, they can smell your scent and they won't come back. Those are all myths. I mean, they, you're perfectly fine if the, if the animal is in danger you're perfectly fine kind of getting it out of there and rescuing it. Um, but a lot of times, like you had mentioned, there really is no danger. There is no problem. Mother's around. Mother knows. Mother doesn't have to be with them 24 hours a day. Um, mother comes back when she needs to, and, and she's watching, so she's aware. The only time you really should have to take action um, and maybe try to help is if you know that that parent is, is you know, deceased. If you, 
if you saw it get hit by a car or if you saw a dog or a cat or something get it or if you know that deer got hit by a car or something, then you want to help. But otherwise, there's really no need to in a lot of those cases. They're, they're perfectly fine on their own. And that's really important to note. Rob, can you also maybe explain to us the importance of contacting the right re- rehabilitation center, perhaps, if that is the case when it comes to finding an abandoned baby? Uh, because I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, maybe I can take care of this little one on my own. I think I can handle it. But uh, it's best to leave it to the experts, right? Right. And, and especially one of the biggest rules um, is no matter what you think that animal wants, you should never feed a wild animal because so many people, you know, they think robins eat worms or that rabbits eat carrots, you know, stuff like that. You never want to feed those animals. That could actually injure them and be bad for them. So um, if you know, again, if you know that that animal's injured or orphaned or abandoned for sure, you know that parent is dead, then you want to call a wildlife rehab facility. Um, and there are, there are only a few, unfortunately, in our area that take wildlife anymore. A few of them, you know, because... You know, we talk to the feather a lot on the show. Uh, Their resources are so limited that they can't just take in all sorts of wildlife. They have to specialize in in birds of prey and cranes. Um, Really, the only one in the area that that will take um, a lot of the injured and orphaned mammals, especially, and even small birds, is Bay Beach Wildlife Sanctuary. And even though it's in Green Bay, um, they will still take just about anything they can get. Now, I'm not sure. I know they were closed down for a while with the virus. Um, but wildlife rehab facilities were deemed essential, but I'm still not sure if Bay Beach has opened up yet. But give the wildlife sanctuary a call. Um, any of the rehabbers, any of the wildlife rehabbers, they usually always require that you capture that animal or put it in a box, you know, package it up, whatever you need to do, and bring it to them because they don't have the staff or the volunteers to come and get it, come and rescue it. So you usually have to bring the wildlife um, to them. That's a good point. Rob, I always think of, uh, I think you know that I lived in the Northwoods. I lived in Rhinelander for two years working in local local TV up there. And one of my favorite organizations was Wild Instincts that's in the Rhinelander area. And yep, they are a phenomenal organization uh, in, in the Rhinelander area, again, uh, that takes care of animals. And I, I, I thought of you, Rob, when they posted this week on, on social media of someone who meant very well uh, trying to raise some uh, some little baby eastern cottontail rabbits. And yeah. sadly, when they compared the size of those little babies to one of a similar age, uh, they were majorly and extremely underweight and malnourished. And I know that person meant well, but uh, they were sharing how uh, it's really best to leave it to the professionals, especially um, because if you compared them to the animal that was the same age, they are so much teenier. <laughs> They're yeah. so much smaller. Yeah. Broke your heart to read that. Right. And, and, you know, there's nothing, you know, rabbits at that young age, they need mother's milk and mother's milk is specially concentrated. It's the right concentration to, help them grow quickly until they can start to feed on vegetation on their own. So it's very important, again, that you don't, that's what I was saying before, is one of the number one rules is do not feed that animal. No matter how hungry you think it is, um, do not feed that animal. Get it to a wildlife uh, rehab facility or at least call them for guidance on what to feed it if they, because if they, some of them might say, you know, um, you know, I know for the raccoons, raccoons eat cat food and dog food and stuff. And I mean, they, some animals <laughs> eat such weird things, but um and I'll talk about, you know, if I have to shut up, just let me know, because I, I have no idea what time it is. I can't see my phone or anything. So, But um, I was going to say, after the next break or, 
or whatever, I can talk about a really good um, free resource that's available um, on the DNR's website that just goes to, it's got pages and pages and pages for just about every animal species in our area and what to do if you find one. Um, and it's got a listing of all the wildlife rehabbers uh, out there. Um, and if you can't find that, if you just call the local sheriff's department, they know who to contact. So a lot of the wildlife rehabbers actually recommend you call the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department will actually get in touch with them. Yeah, that's a great place to take a pause, Rob. So we will do just that. And a reminder, 281-1150 is the number on our Settlers Bank phone lines. We'll take a break. Back with more of Outdoors with Rob Zimmer after this. We are back with more of Outdoors with Rob Zimmer, part of WHBY and Focus Fox Valley on your Friday afternoon. I'm Haley Tenpass. Rob joins us on our Settlers Bank phone lines. And a reminder that 281-1150 is the number to get your questions or comments into Rob. And Rob, actually, during the break, we had a caller uh, with a question on mushrooms, specifically morel mushrooms. And they were wondering if you had seen any morels yet. Yes, I have. <laughs> I have a, I have a really feeling awesome. that you won't tell us where, though. <laughs> oh, definitely not. No, no, no smart person would share their morale mushroom locations. But yeah, they are. They are like like I was saying before. Everything's kind of two to three weeks behind this year because the soil was so cold, especially you know those last three weeks where it's below freezing every night. Um, so I did see some, not a lot, but I have been seeing them the last few days. So. Um, and I think with temperatures going up in the uh, 70s and 80s this week and next week, um, we should be able to, we should start to see some. Um, I haven't seen many, but I did see a few. <laughs> so, um, and just recently, like in the last two or three days. So they're just starting to pop. Like I said, everything's running about two to three weeks late than later than normal right now. So usually, I mean, I see my first morel mushrooms in mid to late April. So we're already to late May, and I'm just seeing my first ones. So. Um, I have been seeing people down in southern Wisconsin, like in the Kettle Moraine areas. Um, people have been posting, you know, literally baskets full. So there's more down there in southern Wisconsin. But right here locally, I just started seeing them this week. All right. So, great question. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that and is a here, great question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, here, here in our area, we have basically two different kind of morel mushrooms. There's the black morels and the, and the yellow morels. Those are the two most common ones. Usually I see the black morels first and then the yellows, um, and that's pretty much how it's been this year. I've seen both, but again, not many of each. I didn't even pick them. I left them, I left, left them alone for the, for the critters to eat. So. But, yeah. All They're right. Fun. Well, thank you to that caller for bringing that up. Rob, yeah. I know we were talking uh, baby animals before. You want to continue on that? Sure, yeah. I wanted to talk about a couple things. We were talking about... Um, why it's important to call a wildlife rehabber and not try to raise it yourself. Um, so I want to go over. The DNR actually has a really nice um, uh, publication on, on what to do. They call it Keeping Wildlife Wild, which I'll talk about in a second here. But they give five reasons to keep wildlife wild. So this means, you know, we shouldn't be taking wildlife in unless, like I said before, unless we know that that parent is dead or injured. Um, just because an animal is alone doesn't mean it's in any danger. Um you know, anim wild animals are so much different than people. You know, wild animals leave their young alone and only come back a couple times a day. So one of the reasons is stress. Like, 
any wild animal that you, you bring into your home or you put in a box or you uh, take in a car, do anything, um, wild animals view people as well as our pets as predators, and they're highly, highly stressed when, um, and not just by seeing us, but by smelling us and, and all of that and, and the different sounds and stuff, especially in our homes. So um, even just that stress can cause health problems and even death for a wild animal. We can literally scare them to death by bringing them in our house, which is pretty sad. Um, the diet, we kind of talked about this before when you were talking about the cottontails. Um, most wild animals have very specialized dietary needs, um, especially when they're young. They have to have that milk. They have to have, you know, the care of their parents, whatever the parents are feeding them, whether it's milk or um, regurgitated food, which sounds gross, but that's what a lot of them do. Uh, whatever it is, they need to have that specialized diet. And if we try to supplement it, like I, like I said, I, I run into so many people who find a baby rabbit and they put it in a cage and throw some carrots in there. Well, baby rabbits are not interested in carrots. Just because Bugs Bunny is doesn't mean, you know, these wild animals are. They need they need the milk. They need the concentrated milk from the mother until they're ready to eat grasses and, uh, and other vegetation. Um, so there you go. So don't, feed, don't attempt to feed them. Just call a wildlife rehabber. Um, the disease aspect, too. A lot of wild animals um, uh, can carry different diseases or they can catch diseases from us. I mean, there's a lot of diseases that humans have that we can give to animals that we don't want to do, especially um, snakes and amphibians. They're finding more and more how many snake species and, and frogs and toads and salamanders are actually catching diseases from us. So we shouldn't be picking them up and handling them and things like that. And, of course, some of them um, can transmit diseases to us or to our pets. So that's another reason to leave them alone. Um, just their natural development. You've probably heard of imprinting, where, where baby animals can imprint on the first thing they see. And if it's, if it's you or if it's a person, you know, that animal has instantly just lost its wild instinct and it's going to try to follow you around forever. Um, so you don't want to change their, their natural uh, development. So wild animals need to learn normal social behaviors from their own species. And um, that's why it's important to leave them out into the wild. Um, and actually, the, the most common sense one on their list um, that a lot of people don't think of, because like you said before, a lot of people have good intentions. You know, they're doing this with the best of intentions, but actually it's illegal. It's, it's, it's illegal to have animals in your home. It's illegal to have wild animals in your home. Um, it's illegal to take wild animals from the wild, even if you have good intentions. So even some of the wildlife rehabbers, you know, they have to have a certain license to have certain types of animals there. So, um, even if you think you're doing the right thing, it's really illegal for you to take that animal into your home. And, and that's another reason, again, why you want to contact a wildlife rehabber to see if, um, if anything needs to be done. But I wanted to talk about uh, that website. I, I, I expect, <laughs> I want every single person listening and on my Facebook page to get this website in your bookmarks or your favorites. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have it, but if you go to Google and Google Wisconsin DNR, Keep Wildlife Wild. It's an amazing web page from the DNR, and it's just got tons of different sub-pages and, and documents in there. What to do if you find a baby squirrel, baby songbird, baby deer, baby coyote, baby skunk, baby whatever, and it gives you a specific sheet for each animal. Um, so you never really have to um, wonder what to do or guess what to do. It will tell you step by step by step. And then it also has a listing of all the wildlife rehabbers in there too. So everybody... Go get that website in your favorites and you because you, you never know when you're going to use it or when you're going to need it. So uh, put it on your phone, put it on your computer, whatever, and have that ready in case you find a 
a young or orphaned or injured animal. Great advice, Rob. And we will, of course, link that website over at whpy.com. So if you can't oh. find it now, don't worry. We'll post it over at whpy.com under Rob's podcast. Rob, we had to take a break for news, uh, but we're going to come back in our next half hour. And I think Rob wants to continue that monarch butterfly talk. Yeah, right? so I'm going to talk about monarch. Yes, right. so stay with us. More Monarch Talk coming up in our next half hour. And don't forget, 281-1150 is the number if you want to uh, tell us about your Monarch spottings or any other outdoor questions for Rob, too. That's on the way. Your local news is next here on WHBY. Once again, welcome back to Focus Fox Valley. It's time for Outdoors with Rob Zimmer. We're continuing our conversation with Rob Zimmer himself. And our Settlers Bank phone line is open. 281-1150 is the number. Talking monarch butterflies because Rob has had his first spotting of some monarchs this week. Very exciting. Yes, it is very exciting. And they are back. Um, So I wanted to give people... Kind of a heads up, if they're going to the garden center this weekend to buy some plants, you know, pick up a couple extra blooming plants right now for the monarchs because other than, and then we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago or several weeks ago, we were talking about this. Uh, one of the monarchs' main sources of food right now are dandelions. And, and if you're from, from Appleton, you know Appleton's doing their no mow may, which kind of encouraged people to keep those dandelions and other um, flowering plants uh, um, standing in your yards just for this situation. This is exactly what that was created for because our wildflowers are two to three weeks behind, so the monarchs don't have as much to feed on as they usually would. Um, They also, one of their heaviest early season uh, nectar sources are lilacs, which are, as we talked about before, are just starting to bloom. So you can tell that some of the plants are a little bit far behind. So I wanted to talk about um, some of the early season nectar sources that you could buy at garden centers or um, hopefully are already blooming in your yard um, for this time of year. So some of them are wild lupine, which is uh, just starting to bloom. I posted some pictures on my Facebook page, which is Rob Zimmer Outdoors. I posted some pictures of some wild lupine here in Outagamie County blooming this week up in the northern part of the county. Uh, that's a very popular early season choice because it's one of the first um, prairie wildflowers to start blooming. Mosquito Hill has big patches of it, um, as well as out west in the Cedar. And up north around Shano has some huge patches of lupine, too. Um, another one is called hoary cocoon, which is probably not something you're going to find in a, in a garden center, but it's a very beautiful neon orange wildflower that's blooming right now. Dandelions, like I said, dandelions, even though a lot of people hate them, it's one of the most important early season nectar and pollen sources for butterflies and bees and other um, pollinators as well. Um, violets, everybody's yard is probably full of violets right now. And those are important nectar sources for monarchs. A lot of times you see monarchs even just crawling around on the ground, going from violet to violet to dandelion to dandelion, you know, all these little short plants looking for food right now. Um, hawkweed, orange hawkweed, which is technically not a native wildflower, but it's a, it's a gorgeous kind of, um, a lot of people call it Indian paintbrush, but it's not Indian paintbrush. Those are just starting to bloom. Those are a great early season uh, nectar source. Service berry. A lot of people know that their service berry shrubs are just starting to bloom. That's a great nectar source for monarchs right now. So are your fruit trees. So if you've noticed your crab apples and plums and pears and cherries are all blooming right now, that's some um, great food for monarchs. 
Canada anemones, which are kind of white wildflowers that grow in ditches along the highway, those are a great source of nectar. The orange milkweed, and like I said, the orange milkweeds and some of the other ones, they're two to three weeks behind right now. So normally they'd be blooming by June 1st, but they're going to be several weeks behind, so they're not going to get that rich nectar from those. Allium or your ornamental onions, those are a great source of nectar uh, for monarchs. And wild columbine, which is just starting to bloom too. So those are some great things that you can pick up right now, a lot of those anyway, at the garden center that are hopefully in bloom that you can get out there for the monarchs. And some lantanas, uh, I'm sorry, some annuals like lantanas and verbenas and zinnias that are already in bloom that you get at garden centers. Heliotrope is one of the best annuals for monarchs, and a lot of garden centers have that right now in bloom. Um, some salvias, some verbenas, um, cosmos is another one, pentis, um, and some others are great. And a lot of garden centers have those right now in bloom. You can plant them in a container or plant them in the ground and help feed those monarchs that are coming back and finding uh, very few wildflowers in bloom right now. I love it. Rob, this might be a silly there. question, but are, are monarchs drawn to any particular color? Not really, no. They're drawn to just—they're uh, drawn to the nectar, and a lot of times, um, because, because butterflies actually don't see in the same colors that we do. There's some very interesting um, websites and pictures out there, but that show how butterflies and insects see flowers, and a lot of times they, they see an ultraviolet light, which is completely different, or infrared, which is completely different than how we see them. Uh, and you can Google like how butterflies see flowers, and you just see some fascinating. Um, pictures. Every little line or every little squiggle in a flower means something. It's almost like a like a runway leading those insects right to the to the nectar and pollen. So the color really doesn't matter as much as as just a rich source of food for them. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I uh, passed a garden center today, Rob, and I don't think there was a single parking spot open. Everyone was was uh, trying to get out, get everything in order before the weekend. Yep, it has been a busy week, and now it's some, with some rain coming. You know, a lot of people want to get those plants in before the, because uh, of course, rainwater is so much better for the plants than than our our hose. You know, so anytime we can get them some rainwater, although it did rain pretty hard a few days last weekend uh, and early this week, but yeah, the rain is so much better for them than because uh, they get the a richer nitrogen and all of that in, into the the plants too. So I want to talk a little about the monarch life cycle. And if you see monarchs, by the way, give us a call. Or if you have hummingbirds or orioles or anything, give us a call and let us know. I want to hear from you too, what you're seeing at your feeders and all of that. Um, a couple people have posted pictures on my Facebook page this week asking me to identify certain things. Um, some frogs, some gray tree frogs, uh, and some other stuff too, and some birds. So if you're seeing anything, give us a call. But I want to talk just a little bit about the monarch life cycle, because this is kind of fascinating. Uh, once the monarchs come back into our area, which is right about now, what they're doing is the females are specifically looking for fresh monarch shoots that are just coming up. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, there's no milkweed. What are they going to lay their eggs on? Right now, this time of year, monarchs aren't looking for great, big, full, showy, blooming milkweed plants. They're looking for little tiny spikes, almost just like asparagus. They just want a little spike because the female knows that that little spike is going to grow and those leaves are going to expand and be big enough just in time for that egg to hatch. So they're not really looking for big, you know, two feet tall, fully leafed out flowering milkweed. They're looking for a little spike. Um, and they, they hunt all over the fields and grasslands looking for those. 
and she goes around depositing hundreds of eggs on every little spike that she can find. Um, and those eggs last about four to six days. So in, in four to six days already, those caterpillars hatch. So it's pretty amazing when you think of that, those little tiny eggs that are, you know, just a little pinprick of an egg. Four to six days later, the caterpillars hatch. Um, the monarch caterpillar spends about 10 to 14 days growing to full size, which full size for a monarch caterpillar is about two inches, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, so in 10 to 14 days, that monarch caterpillar has gone from a little tiny speck to something two or three inches long. Um, and then they're ready to make their chrysalis. So they make their chrysalis really fast. You know, they'll crawl up on a, on a, a perch or somewhere away from the milkweed plant to make their chrysalis. They'll hang upside down, make their J-hook, and then they'll form their chrysalis very quickly. And that chrysalis, they'll remain in that stage for about 10 to 14 days. Um, and after that, the butterfly, the monarch, uh, hatches. And then uh, for most of the year, the average monarchs that are born in June, July, and part of August, they live about three weeks. So the average lifespan for an adult summer monarch is about two to three weeks. But then you may have heard, uh, we talk about this on the show every year, but the last generation of the year, they call it the super generation, that's the generation of monarchs that actually migrate south. It's that one final hatching that migrates south that's usually hatched in late August. And they can live all the way through March. So they're literally living, you know, six or eight months, whereas um, most monarchs throughout the year only live about three weeks. So it's pretty amazing how, how nature does that, how that happens. And how does nature know that that last, hatch of monarchs has to live, you know, 10 times longer than, than all the other ones before it. it. It's just, it's a miracle. It really is a miracle how, how that works. Well, we are learning a lot about monarchs today, Rob. <laughs> it's wonderful. And I think you've got a top yeah. 10 list coming up too that is monarch related. Yeah, but I might have changed my mind. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I find out what Rob changed his mind to <laughs> coming up after this break. So we'll come back with Rob's top 10 list, whatever it may be, right after this on WHBY. And we are back with our final moments of Outdoors with Rob Zimmer on this May 22nd, 2020. Your last chance to get a call in, 281-1150 is the number on our Settlers Bank phone lines. And uh, we've been talking all sorts of things today between uh, morels and monarchs and baby animals. We've covered a lot of ground today with Rob Zimmer. Yeah, and before I get to my top 10 list, I just want to, I covered the early season nectar plants for monarchs. I want to talk about something that's just as important, and especially, you know, with the year coming up since they, the monarch population dropped really um, severely again in Mexico this winter, down 30% from last year, uh, which was a very huge disappointment for a lot of us monarch people because we had such a huge increase right here in Wisconsin. But when those monarchs made it to Texas, there was nothing down there because there was a drought and they had nothing to feed on to get them the rest of the way. So a lot of them didn't make it. So I want to talk about late season nectar sources for like after Labor Day when the monarch pop, uh, migration is in full swing. So some of those are New England aster, which is a very popular native wildflower. It's your little purple and yellow daisy that you see everywhere in September and October. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, heliotrope, I talked about that before. The purple heliotrope, it smells really good. It's a really wonderful annual. That's another great late season source of nectar for monarchs or, or pollen. Yeah, nectar. Uh, Mexican sunflowers, that's a really great one. Minnesota, the state of Minnesota, counts that as their number one monarch nectar source for the fall migration. 
Um, sky blue aster, which is another aster, is kind of a light blue color. Showy goldenrod, actually any of your goldenrods, stiff goldenrod, showy goldenrod, all these other goldenrods, they're great, great plants uh, for monarch nectar in the fall. Joe pieweed is another one, a kind of a pink frothy flower. Zinnias and cosmos, some great as, um, annuals that you can plant in your garden for monarchs that bloom all the way through Halloween if we don't get a hard frost. Um, all of those are great late-season nectar sources for monarchs for after Labor Day, from Labor Day through you know October 1st when the monarch popular uh, migration is at its peak. All right. All righty. Do, do I time for my top ten list then? You sure do. Yep. This is kind of by request, so that's why I kind of changed my mind. <laughs> Someone wanted me to give them, uh, it's, it's something having to do with insects, too. They wanted me to give some recommendations for plants that they can plant on their patio or in a container to help repel mosquitoes, so mosquito repellent plants. Uh-huh. So I'm Very smart. <laughs> I actually have way more than 10, so I'll just give my list because I have a lot here. Um, so I'm just going to go through and talk about some of them because there's a lot of really great plants that you can just put in a container or a window box or plant in the ground around your porch or patio or deck to help keep mosquitoes away. Um, a lot of them are herbs, so I'll start with some of the herbs. Uh, basil and lemongrass and oregano are all great, great plants to help keep mosquitoes away. And the more the wind can catch them and kind of release that scent, or the more you can walk by them and release that scent, uh, the better the range is for, for keeping mosquitoes away. So a lot of your herbs, lavender, which is the perennial of the year, according to the uh, National Garden Bureau, that's another great one for keeping mosquitoes away. Scented geraniums, there's a lot of different scented geraniums. One of them is the citronella plant. They call it citronella, um, but it smells just kind of like a lemony, citrusy smell. But there's lots of other scented geraniums that come in like orange and apple and chocolate and rose, and those all help to keep mosquitoes away. Uh, Catmint, which is a, a popular garden perennial, um, very fragrant when you walk past it, That kind of like lavender, that's another great one. And catnip, which is a very common um, wild herb here in Wisconsin. It grows everywhere, and that's a great one for keeping mosquitoes away. Tansy, which is, um, if you're not familiar with tansy, it's in the feverfew family. It gets pretty tall, gets little yellow button-like flowers at the top. It's very fragrant. That keeps mosquitoes away. Bee balm or bergamot, that's another great one because if you've ever smelled wild bergamot, uh, it's just an amazing smell. Marigolds, of course. Everyone knows that marigolds are very fragrant, keep a lot of pests away. Um, Garlic, the smell of garlic and chives will keep those away. And speaking of those, allium, your ornamental allium that are just starting to bloom right now. Um, Thyme and rosemary, more herbs, planting just containers of herbs or an herb garden should help you keep uh, mosquitoes away. Um, for trees and shrubs, white cedar is a really good one. Your northern white cedar or arborvita, all the different hybrids of that, they're great at keeping mosquitoes away. Ageratum or floss, floss, floss flower, it's that little blue fuzzy flower you see at a lot of garden centers this time of year. It's an annual that keeps mosquitoes away. Eucalyptus, if you buy a eucalyptus tree to plant outside during the summer or just put outside in a pot, that's great for keeping uh, mosquitoes away. And chamomile, another herb. Um, so a lot of different plants that you can choose from or you can mix and match them in a container that you can plant. And they're, they're beautiful, too. They're all beautiful. So you can make a really beautiful mosquito-repellent container or two or three or ten to put around your patio or deck, and that should help keep the mosquitoes at bay throughout the summer. Fantastic. Rob, do you have a mosquito report for us yet? What have you been seeing when it comes to those little buggers? 
I haven't seen many yet. I'm out in the woods every day, and I haven't been bothered yet. I did see um, one of the local weather personalities posted yesterday that he got his first mosquito bite yesterday. So I did notice that. Uh, but I personally haven't been bit at all yet. I, now, I will say I have gotten completely overloaded with wood ticks over the past week or two. Wood ticks are absolutely horrible right now. So if you're going out in the woods this weekend, make sure you use, you know, get the full strength. You know, there's all kinds of home remedies and stuff out there for ticks. But ticks are so dangerous that I, I go full strength, deep woods off or the cut, cutters, whatever. Don't mess around with wood ticks because if you get something from them, you know, that could be bad. So, um, you know, a lot of people don't like to wear the DEET and stuff like that. But when it comes to ticks, you really don't want to mess around. So deep woods off is my, my tick repellent of choice. Um, so really right now I'm, I'm seeing a lot more wood ticks than I am mosquitoes. That's an interesting report, but good to know, because I, I know you wanted to mention this, Rob, so we'll try to squish it in really quick here, but uh, State Park's opening beginning tomorrow, oh, yeah. actually. Yeah, we got some news today that the, the DNR um, uh, publicized today that they are returning most of the state parks to their regular operating hours, which is 6 to 11. Um, so as you may recall, for the past few weeks or since they reopened, they were closing at 6 o'clock at night and then closed on Wednesdays. So they are reopening beginning tomorrow. Um, there's still no camping, though. Camping is closed until at least June 7th. They're going to work on uh, what to do after that. But the parks are open. Um, they are not opening all of their restrooms, though, so be prepared. You know, they always say carry in what you carry out. Use the restroom before you go there. Some of them will open some of their restrooms, but uh, they said don't plan on them being open. Bring your own sanit hand sanitizer if you need to in case the, the restrooms are closed. Um, there are a couple state parks that are still closed. Rock Island won't be, won't be opening until July 1st. Um, and a few state natural areas are still closed down in southern Wisconsin. Um, but most of the other state parks will be opening their regular scheduled hours tomorrow. Uh, but just be aware, again, the bathrooms will probably still be closed, so use the restroom before you go there. And, of course, bring in what you bring out and all of that good stuff. I have heard the lake flies are, are slowing down on Lake Winnebago. You know, last week or 10 days or so have been uh, horrendous on different sides of Lake Winnebago, depending what side you were on with those strong winds. Uh, but they, they've been calming down, I've, I've been hearing. So it should be a great weekend out at High Cliff and some of the other parks. All right. Well, we started with monarchs and ended with bug talk and sprinkled a little bit of morale <laughs> mushroom chatter and uh, some other great details about keeping our baby animals safe throughout this full hour of Outdoors with Rob Zimmer. Rob, we hope that you enjoy the long weekend and we will check back with you next week. All right. See you then. Thanks, Rob. We have more of Focus Fox Valley coming up. Your CBS and local news just moments away. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.